This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. What's it like when one of your friends on death row is led away to be executed? You have a prepaid call from William A. Aguirre. An inmate at the California State Prison, San Quentin. This call and your telephone number will be monitored and recorded. I had to be a different, complete guy, which is the guy who walked the walkways of San Quentin's death row and without a gang, without a, a group of people around me, it was just me. Soon after you went into to be on death row, and you didn't really understand the prison workout system so much, but then he said, we're going to do 75 sets of it. To me, that seems extreme. So I'm wondering if there's a danger of overtraining, wearing yourself out, so that you're. <laughs> no, no, that's actually funny. That's, and it's funny, and I'll tell you why. Right? And I, that's a good one, man. No, I'll, I'll tell you why. Right. Welcome to Death Row Diaries. I'm Matt Ralston. And today we're talking about Dennis Rader. That's the BTK killer, a name that, uh, as you told me, Bill, he gave himself. So I don't know. We should just call this nerd Dennis Rader, maybe. Uh, so we're well, going to maybe just maybe how about just egotistical maniac? How's that sound? Yeah, like the least interesting guy in Wichita. But you do have some insights into his psyche and that part. Even though he's he's pretty dense, I think he's a dumb guy, there is some interesting stuff to talk about here. So before that, we have a listener question. And that is coming from Walter in Indianapolis, Indiana. And... Walter wants to know, what's the first thing you're going to do when you get out? <laughs> hey, yeah, uh, that's, that's a doozy right there. And look, not to sound like I'm avoiding the question, I never think about getting out. If I thought about getting out, it would kill me. Uh, I've been in this cage for nearly 40 years, and I learned very early on that if you think about those things. If you're thinking about things you're going to do or want to do as each day passes, each month, each year, each decade, it kills you a little bit more. So I never think about that. Even when the the court, the federal court three years ago reversed my entire conviction throughout my sentence, most people would have thought, you're going to start thinking about getting out. And I made that mistake for a very brief time. And with that order, here I am still, nearly four years later, still in this cage. So the simple answer is, I think about getting out, it would kill me. Yeah, that's a little chilling to hear, but I totally understand. And I mean, I'm not a 
I'm not trying to make light of it at all, but a similar thing that I do is when I have something like a um, gig that I have in the entertainment industry and, and things like that, I never try and get excited about it because I've just seen it not happen before. I think for just for my mental health, I will not allow myself to act like it's going to happen until I, until I see the fruition that it's happened. That's exactly right. You know, if, when I, if I ever, um, I step out of this place and my feet are on the ground outside those gates, then I'll probably smile. But till then, I think about my next project. I think about things I'm doing in here, what's going on in the yard, what I have to do to stay vigilant. But I never think about that. But I do thank you for the question. Yeah, we appreciate it. Uh, don't forget to follow us on Instagram and Facebook at Death Row Diaries. And to listen to the show on Apple Podcasts and rate and review it, that really helps. Tell a friend. I know that some of the prison guards in San Quentin are, are telling their friends about it, and we appreciate them listening. And it, it does help us out. So let's get into this creep. Man, Dennis Rader, angry nerd. Uh, he is a little bit unlike a lot of the cases that we've talked about in that there's nothing here in his early life that necessarily points towards serial killer, is there? No, there is not. And this kind of backs up what I've been saying all along, that serial killers are born. They're not made. And we, but this guy is a perfect example of a guy who's born a certain way. There's nothing in his history. This call and your telephone number will be monitored and recorded. That we can attribute to him being created into the serial killer. Um, there is no focus or pinpoint on an event. He, he has siblings, uh, and, and they're all normal people. This guy is the perfect example of the kind of people I've studied and known and interacted with over the past 40 years. Uh, serial killers, as law enforcement experts and historians will say, that something in their environment made him into this guy. And, it, you know, there's, it's almost like a sympathetic look at this guy. This guy, BTK, is a perfect example of my theory. Um, and, you know, I'm sure that you've looked at his early years, and he even talks about what he was doing as a very young boy, and that is sexual fantasies about helpless women uh, from very early age. He's torturing animals, trying to control animals. He also acts out these sexual fetishes he has of erotic asphyxiation. And to top it off, he's a cross-dresser. Yeah, no. This guy was born this way. So you think there's zero environmental factor going on? Uh, I mean, he's going to claim like little triggers here and there, but I don't know. I mean, I don't have any children, and honestly, part of the reason is what if I just got this dude? Well, look, I mean, you can't blame the parent, really. It's 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 something you're wired a certain way. But let me let me make it simpler for, for the audience and for you. Okay, so 
these behavioral factors that we attribute to that are serial killer in nature, they're really no different from when a boy is attracted to girls or a boy is attracted to boys. 50 years ago, so-called experts would argue to you that you could pray and teach these born traits out of individuals. They made boys that like boys or girls that like girls or whatever. They made them feel bad about themselves, like there was something wrong with them. Well, believing a serial killer like BTK was created is just as outdated as these beliefs. BTK was born this way, and nothing would have changed that. Sooner or later, he would have killed. And uh, the parent has nothing to do with this. Sure, some environmental things can speed the process along. And of course, if you ask the serial killer, he's going to tell you all these things that he, that he experienced that make him turn into it. It's an excuse. It's a built-in mechanism to kind of explain themselves. Because what? Everybody wants to be understood, including these insects. So I don't want to belabor the point, but I do want to make sure I understand what you're saying here. So let's say you catch this guy killing a squirrel when he's five. Is there not a way to channel this into like, I don't know, you're, you're going to work for a football team or, or a major corporation where you're sort of psychotic tendencies are celebrated you're saying he would have killed because that's that's pretty strong language it, yes it is totally and not everybody that tortures animals and not everybody addresses and and women's stockings or high heels turns into a serial killer it's a special individual so let me let me explain myself a little more so we have guys that obviously turn into rapists but that's all they become they never graduate to becoming serial killers. They never kill. They just rape and they continue to rape. Some of them become serial rapists. Some of them do it a few times and it quenches that thirst that they have, this hunger, whatever you want to call it. But less than 1% of 1% and probably less than that graduate to that next step, which is to kill. Because they normally, if you watch, they normally don't start off killing. They never do. They they, they lurk around, they peep, they, uh, they, were, uh, they steal underwear, they, they may assault women, then they begin to rape them, and then they begin to modify their MO. And then they get better at it until they perfect and they realize they need to get to the next level, and then they kill. So this is a very small percentage. So it's not just torturing animals, putting fires, because you could probably ask, I don't know, 75 to 80% of boys, and they're going to tell you at some point they lit fires, they did something they should have done to animals or something that just looked a little, you know, sociopathic when they were kids. So, no, it's not just everyone that does that. It's a specific person, and that guy was wired that way from the very beginning. So he grows up in Wichita, and what he does have in common along with the he, – he doesn't have in common the torture. He doesn't have in common the abuse in his upbringing that a lot of these guys have. Uh, he's he's just growing up in Wichita with normal to perhaps indifferent parents. That's the only thing they can say about him, right? Oh, his parents didn't care a whole lot about him. Right. That's not a trigger to go out and kill. It just isn't. Uh, let me call right back. So what I got from this guy's bio and his background 
And you can tell by looking at him. He's uptight. He's very serious. He is organized. That's the best way that I can describe him. And it comes through in his exploits. Um, he has a military background. You know, he, he goes into the military. It doesn't work out. I think I probably know why. Serving in the Air Force. He then becomes... a. He, he begins working for a security company at some point. And these are all, this is somewhat typical of a serial killer background is that he wants to be involved in the, in the, in the law enforcement side. He wants to like relive his disgusting crimes from the perspective of someone in law enforcement, I think. Well, yeah, you would think that from first, when you first look at this, but it, it goes deeper than that. So the reason you say he looks serious, he, he's very much always looking and, and, he, and he's in control of things is because that's his thing. He has to be this way because as a very young boy and a teenager, he's lurking around in, in women's clothing, watching women through windows. He steals her one underwear and then he stands outside their window when they come home and he watches them as he masturbates. He also ties himself up and takes pictures of himself in women's clothing. He cuts out women's uh, pictures from magazines, and he posts them together in pieces of paper. This is a way that an adolescent is learning the control game. What you're seeing and what you're witnessing is him perfecting, he's perfecting and understanding himself. These guys don't come into the fray already knowing exactly who they are and what they are. They're guessing. They're playing this game of almost, um, you know, it's kind of like a, a, a game of experiments. They're experimenting to see what really makes them work. As you said, he joins the Air Force in 1966. He discharged in 1970. There is nothing that happened there that would tip you off that he's going to be a serial killer. He begins to work in a supermarket where his mother works as a meat cutter. Again, nothing going on there. Here's where people start looking at him, or I mean, we are now, and then you see what's really going on. He only dates his wife a few times, and he marries her right away. Eh, could have been love at first sight. I think he was just awkward, didn't understand what was going on. But he goes to a normal, uh, you know, first couple years of marriage. He attends Butler Community College. He goes to Wichita State University earning a BS in administrative justice. And then, you know, we start seeing things change. And they change, and this is where you can start saying that triggers happen in his life that make that other side of him come out. You know, his, his wife works, he works, he loses his job. And we understand now that what gets him off, what his, is his signature, his, what, what makes BTK who he is, is control. He loses control at home because he loses his job. His wife is the breadwinner. And how does he respond? That's what we have to look at. And that is very plain. It's January 15, 1974. And he's been watching a family because now for a couple of years, he didn't miss He's been watching what he calls projects. I mean, think about that. 
he watches people as projects, not because they're serial killers, not because he's trying to better himself. No, he's hunting. This is how this predator hunts. He watches people till something they do makes it tilting him, and he goes after them. And that family is the Otero family. And this isn't by chance. As I said, he studied them, and then he executed his plan. He enters the home when the small child, Joseph Jr., opens the back door to let the dog out, and he enters. He immediately murders the, the small child. Then he goes out to the father, Joseph Sr., who's 38, kills him. He then kills the mother, Julie Otero, 33. And then he leaves a small little girl named Josephine, she's 11, for last. He takes her downstairs. He ties her up separately and hangs her up. This is what, this is where it's at for him. Remember, an MO, this is not, this is what gets him off. It's, as I explained before, what makes these people different, each one of them individually different, is what gets them off. What makes it for them. And here's where it's at. He ties her up, and as she's struggling and asphyxiating, he, well, for lack of a better word, he pleasures himself, and we know this because we find um, seminal fluid on the floor. So what gets him off is that she is struggling. He has control of the situation. And that's how he ends it. He kills the entire family of four. So I'm confused a little bit. Is he... Is his gratification coming from from killing the woman and the other people are just in the way? Because most serial killers, if they can, they just find a woman that's alone, right? Correct. But not with him. No. For him, it's the, entire, the entirety of the control. He controlled the entire family. That's why he binds them. The child, the little girl, is found hanging, bound, and the seminal fluid is on the floor. What got him off was the entirety of the of, of the, the killing of the entire family, controlling, but at the very end, controlling her, and therefore it met his thirst. That's what got him off, is to control. The sex is just aside from it. It's actually the control that gets this guy going. It's the psychological gratification of controlling an individual. That's where it comes from. And that could be expressed in his not saying this about people in general who are involved in a church, but I just mean that he's involving himself in kind of uh, an organizational and uh, an authority role where you know, he's responsible for other people. And I'm sure there were instances where he kind of abused his power, like we see passive aggressive people doing in, you know, administrative jobs here and there. And he's, he's installing alarm systems in people's houses. And to me, that sounds just because I guess I'm self-obsessed to me. That's the most frightening part of this whole thing is that when I see someone coming to install an alarm system in my house, my first thought is, well, the guy's just a serial killer. And this has proven me correct. Well, yeah. I mean, 
mean, this guy took things to an extreme level. But you're right. The what he involves himself in the church being he's not just a member. He's the president of the church. So yes, he uses like many weird people have in their lives. He uses the church as a way to control people through, you know, whatever you want to call it, doctrine, rules, whatever. But he does live through that a bit, and we see it also in how he controls the media, too. But this guy could have done these murders, and nothing would have come of it. But that's not what he does. He leaves the Otero car. He takes the car, and he puts it in the middle of a parking lot in in front of a supermarket. And then he writes letters to the Wichita Eagle with directions where to find, you know, descriptions of the crime in libraries. He does sign the, he does sign the letter BTK. He also gives, because of his egotistical, narcissistic, you know, makeup, he gives the media the name that he wants, and he gives suggestions as to what he wants them to call him. I mean, look, he also is smart enough to know because he did study serial killers as well. That's a frightening thought, right? Here I study serial killers for 40 years. Yeah, okay, I'm not going to be a comedian here, but look, he, he not only gives them the name that he wants, but he also understands that serial killers that have nicknames that the media uses are never forgotten. They get all the attention. And he knows this. So that's exactly what he does. Yeah, he's obsessed with the media. He wants recognition. And he'll end up writing these letters that are grammatically just very problematic. And I I actually don't think that's intentional, although it certainly could be. Do you have any thoughts on that? Is he just kind of dense, or is he playing a a Zodiac character of some sort? Yeah, you know, he could be. But, you know, he does have a bachelor's degree in the Minister of Justice. He's he's obviously a guy of average intelligence, okay, if if nothing else. Um, But he is, he he has these this makeup that he can't change because look, three months later, April 4th, 1974, he enters the home of Catherine Bright. She's 21 years old, but she comes home with her brother, which he does not expect. He's waiting inside the house. And since there's now an element that he didn't expect, he doesn't have control. Look what he does. He just shoots her brother, Kevin, immediately. He shoots him. And then in a rage, he pulls a knife out and just stabs Catherine to death. That is not what he wanted to do that day. He wanted to do what he normally does, which is find them, torture them, take photographs of them, and get that gratification. This was completely gone in this situation because there was an element he couldn't control, which is her brother, Kevin. He didn't expect it. And... And what do we? What happens right after that? It spooks him. It it really makes him live a part of himself that does not have control. So for three years we don't hear from this guy. He disappears until March 17, nineteen seventy seven. By then, he is working as a security service uh, installer, of security alarm systems for homes. 
and he kills Shirley Tian. She's 24. And in this case, he needs complete control to kind of, he overdoes it to kind of make up for what he lacked last time and what happened to him. So he comes to the house and he asks the kids at the house if their mom is home. So what he does is he brings the kids into the house and puts them in the bathroom where they can hear and see what's going on. Then he strangles and kills the mother, ties her up and strangles and kills her. Uh, Seminal fluid is found on her head. But the whole deal is that these kids are witnessing what's happening. Therefore, he's controlling the, the narrative and the environment completely. Of course, he's left all this DNA everywhere he's left, but in 1974, for those who don't remember, there are no DNA tests. It's serial killers are not, or criminals are not, uh, they're not given tests, and they don't have to give up their DNA as soon as they're arrested, because that doesn't exist. The science has not caught up to these murderers yet. So, yeah, I mean, it, it's just that simple. And, and BTK was not a spree killer. He killed when it was necessary for him to kill. And that comes, the next time comes on December the 8th, 1977, nine months later. And he strikes again. And this time it's Nancy Fox, who's 25 years old. And she's found, bound and strangled. And again, seminal fluid is found. Oh, death to Nancy. What is it that I can see? Cold, icy hands taking hold of me. For death has come, you all can see. Hell has opened its gates to trick me. Oh death, oh death, can't you spare me over for another year? I'll stuff your jaws till you can't talk. I'll blind your legs till you can't walk. I'll tie your hands till you can't make a stand. And finally, I'll close your eyes till you can't see... I'll bring sexual death onto you for me. I find the newspaper not writing about the poem on vain, unamusing. A little paragraph would have been enough. I know it's not the news media fault. The police chief, he keeps things quiet and doesn't let the public know. There's a psycho running around loose, strangling mostly women. There's seven in the ground. Who will be next? How many do I have to kill before I get a name in the paper or some national attention? Do the cop think that all those deaths are not related? Golly gee. Yes, the MO is different in each. But look, a pattern is developing. The victims are tie-up. Most have been women. Phone cut. Bring some bondage. Master sadist tendencies, no struggle. Outside the death spot, no witnesses except the Vane's kids. They were very lucky. A phone call saved them. I was going to go tape the boys and put plastic bags over their head like I did Joseph and Shirley, and then hang the girl. God, oh God, what a beautiful sexual relief that would have been. Josephine when I hung her, really turned me on, her pleading for mercy.
we're back, I want to go back to something real quick before we proceed with this. So between 1974 and 1977, we hear nothing from him. And if I have this right, you're saying that's because crime, his, his uh, session of torture that he had, I'm assuming, planned pretty well, did not go the way he wanted. And so for three years, he's like brooding about it. Do I have that right? Well, I wouldn't say brooding. There's, there's a number of things that are taking place in this of time. He gets a job as a security installer of alarm systems. That gives him a bit of control. Remember what I said, for BTK, it wasn't about sex. It, it, was, it wasn't about killing. It was about control. So since there's more control in his life, meaning the job, he's, um, and of course, that incident where he, he had no control, having to shoot the brother and someone identifying him and had a pretty good... Uh, sketch of who, what he looked like scared him and it did so for for those couple of years for those three years but he returns as i said 1977 three years later he returns and this time he stalks nancy fox for months he knows she works he stole her mail he learned everything he could about her then he entered her home bound strangled killed her, seminal fluid is found, and it starts again. He is, you know, he's right back at it again. But this time, look at the control factor. He wants to have control of everything, not just the people he's dominating, but the news. A few months later, he writes a letter to the KTV station where he claims responsibilities for seven murders the Otero family, and the three murders since then. And again, he gives suggestions at what he wants to be called. He writes even a poem to demonstrate his lyrical whatever, Ode Death to Nancy, which is kind of a comical imitation to the American folk song, Ode Death. He also asks, and I quote, how many more people do I have to kill to get my name in the papers? This is control freak. This is about one thing, control. Would you say he's, uh, to use, you know, common psychological speak, anal retentive? Well, not common, obviously. He's anal retentive. He's a control freak. He's a micromanager. But he takes it to a whole different level. But he's also making excuses for himself. In that letter, he also suggests that... Factor X, which he describes as supernatural elements, like that of Jack the Ripper, Son of Sam, and the Hillside Stranglers, were all present to influence him. He even goes as far as saying it's a demon, uh, a demon or a demonic possession that factors in to everything he does, and he calls it Factor X. Now look, that's just an excuse. He's having a moment, and he doesn't know what else to write to get these people to start talking about him, so he brings in Factor X. It's just, again, control, control the narrative, and get your name in the paper. That's his deal. Yeah, I don't believe that at all, that he is has a voice in his head that's demanding that he kills 
in the way that he's characterizing it. And he, he cribbed that straight from other serial killers that we know that he studies. So that's, that's garbage. Uh, exactly. There it is. You just hit it right on the mark. He's smart enough to know that other serial killers have used this, you know, factor X or element X or whatever you want to call it. And he's using it to kind of put himself in the same conversation with these guys who are going to go down this history as probably, and look, we know that Jack Ripper was a serial killer. How many people did he kill? It wasn't even close to as many as, but he's famous. And that's what Dennis Rader wants. He wants fame behind all of this. So what do you think before we resume with his, his just deplorable crimes here? During this time, he's married. He ends up having two children, and his wife will purport to not have any idea of how he's spending his free time. She should have been suspicious that he has a van, but you know he is doing the kind of security work. Do you think that you, and this is a hard question to ask, but let's say you're on the outside do you think that you would know something was up with this guy or me being just somewhat street smart? Like, would we be able to tell there's something going on here? Would it just be like, uh, oh, you know, that guy, Dennis, yeah, he's a weirdo. I don't know. Who cares? Yeah, that is a hard question. But look, as far as his wife's concerned, it's very easy to hide that. Just like it's very easy. It's actually easier to hide you're a serial killer than it is to hide that you're having an affair. And Americans, by the millions, have affairs every year. Uh, the reason an affair is so difficult to hide is because if, if another person you're constantly having a relationship with, there's phone calls, there's you know letters or whatever you're doing with this person, there's outings, there's you get to spend time with that family, whatever you're doing. Being a serial killer, remember, look, he, he does seven murders between 1974 and 1978 or something. That's how long that you know seven murders and how many days is that? We're talking about a couple thousand days. So it's very easy to hide that because he's gone for a night. He doesn't return quickly enough. She asked where he's at. Oh, I had to work late that night. If he was doing it every night, if he did it every night, it'd be a lot difficult. A lot more difficult. Given that he does it in sporadic, you know, every few months, every few years, very easy to hide could you and I have told that what he was? Well, I doubt you would have been able to. I suspect everybody, because I've been a guy around guys that look like grandfathers, but yet have killed 40 or 50 people. But how would you know? Like, what markers, if any, would you be able to look at with this guy? Well, with me, and unfortunately... I've had to live the experience to understand these people, and that's why it's so hard for law enforcement who are normal people with normal lives find it so difficult to see what I see. And it's it's not as easy as just, look, he has a mole on his forehead, he must be a serial killer. With these particular people, I normally watch everybody because you don't know who they are. And if I just saw him on the street, no, I couldn't tell. But if I knew him personally, I lived next door to him or had an acquaintance or a relationship with him, I would be able to tell something was off. Um, little small signals that I look for in prison. But most of society has let go of that primal part of themselves. That, that same thing that tells you not to go into a dark alley and you're 
got that feeling. That's what I'm talking about. I've allowed my mind to grow to a heightened state so I can feel things about people that normal people can't. And it's taken four decades of prison life to do it. I mean, hey, I'm part of Neanderthal, so that's the best way to put it. But there are certain things, I couldn't tell you what they are right now, but if I had a relationship with them, a close one where I was an acquaintance, I'd be able to pick up that something was off and I would watch them closer until I pretty much found out what was going on with this guy. Yeah, and we're not going to get into torture porn in some of these podcasts that like to break down the dismemberment of bodies. You know, like, there are certain comedians that other comedians think are funny, and we're not we're not trying to do a show that other serial killers can listen to to, you know, entertain themselves. But we do want to mention that the the acts that he's doing with this torture is uh is very hard to stomach it's it's extreme and i guess that's why we're talking about him yeah and it's one of the reasons i don't really go too into glory details as you said we don't want to glorify these guys we don't want these guys listening to a podcast or a radio and thinking that this is really cool stuff it's nuts uh, but we come to part of the story where um you know it, it, he, he had just murdered um Nancy Fox, and a few months later, his daughter is born, and BTK goes dormant for eight years. And we can read into that, and we should. He's busy. His home life, again, just takes a lot of, uh, as most parents can tell you, it takes a lot of effort to take care of a small infant. And BTK is, you know, he's satisfied. Uh, controlling his home life. So he goes on an eight-year spree with nothing. He's just dormant. And then he pops up again. It's just incredible. 1985, April 27th, Maureen Hedge, 53 years of age, comes home, goes to sleep, and she's unaware that this clown is in her closet waiting for her to fall asleep. And this particular crime that he committed here is one that we may talk, we're going to talk a little bit about what he did because it was so different and it threw police off for a very long time. So obviously he, you know, he kills her, he strangles her to death. But what he does is he takes her to the church where he's the president and he puts her in all these different bondage positions and photographs her right in the, 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 the I'm not sure what you call it, my place. Is it the altar right next to where the, 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 the priest or the, uh, the, the pastor would speak? And he takes photographs of her. Uh, and then he takes the body and he dumps it out next to a ditch and she's found on May the 5th. Why this is so different if he changes everything he does normally he kills them in a house controlling the situation so law enforcement knew what he did he bound them and he tortured them and he did all those things that btk does but with this one he takes her to a different location photographs her and then takes her to another location and dumps the body there with something over her face She's bound, obviously, 
but law enforcement never connects him to this murder. Yeah, but he has, as far as his profile is growing a little bit, uh, I think anyone that's observant would say he may be associated with a church. And, you know, that's something in a relatively small town. Um, But we see, and I, I want you to explain it, but is he at this point trying to get caught or is he walking a line between wanting to indulge in the attention from law enforcement? So he's providing them things to get their attention. Uh, but we'll, we'll see later that he does something where it seems like he actually wants to get caught or he's just really stupid. Yeah, this is not part of, the, of what he's doing now. The Marie Hedge uh, case shows he doesn't want to get caught. He changes complete his, his MO, everything. He changes it. He dumps her in a ditch. They never associate with them. He goes as far. There's, there's actually another murder of an entire family, the Fager family. And law enforcement and the media suggested that BTK was behind it. This clown writes a letter describing that the killings were very admirable, but that he's not the killer. You believe that? He actually tells the police, hey, that's great work, but that's not me. And it's later proven that it wasn't BTK who was the killer. So he's not trying to get caught. He just wants recognition for what he did. The following year, on September the 16th, a young woman by the name of Vicky, uh, and I don't want to mess up her last name, I believe it's Wicker, opens the door to an AT&T worker, and of course, it's BTK. He kills her as well, but before he does, he loses control of the situation. She scratches him. That's not part of what he thought was going to happen. And he leaves. He, you know, he does kill her, but he doesn't do all the other stuff he normally does. And again, here it is again. He goes dormant for five more years. Nothing's heard of this guy. And again, the reason I believe that he stopped is because something went wrong with what he perceived should have been a completely controlled situation that he controlled. So he resurfaces again five years later in 1991. January the 19th. And this time he kills Doris Davis. And this time again, she's found in a ditch with a mask on her face. She's bound, which is completely different from his previous murders. And none of them are attributed to him because of the change in the matter. So, I mean, so you can see this guy's not trying to get caught. And he goes dormant again. From 1991, he goes dormant all the way to 2004. And there are some changes in his life that I believe make him want recognition again. It's the empty nest factor. His daughter's just married. His son goes off to the military. And now he's craving attention. How does he get it? The way he knows how. But he doesn't have to kill anymore because he's going to live on his own respect. He never got recognition for those three murders. No one knew it was him. Vicki Lynn, um, Doris Davis, and Nancy Fox. No one knew it was him. So he writes, I mean, it's crazy. He writes a newspaper and tells them that 
the three murders are actually his. He sends them, um, you know, items. The ID from Nancy Fox. He sends them, uh, uh, you know, photographs of Miss Hedge at the church. And of course, no one had these photographs because even law enforcement did not know he took those photographs at the church because when law enforcement got there, they already removed the body. So he's telling them, hey, I'm here. And he does exactly what he wants. It terrifies everybody. And they think he's back and they can't stop talking about him, which he absorbs like a sponge. It's pathetic that he needs validation essentially in the form of the media. Um, But I'm wondering, which I guess you kind of spoke to, which is that, you know, his family life, he no longer has that. But what is it that makes him think that breaking into an unsuspecting person's house and tying them up and killing them is impressive? Because no one, most people don't want to do that. But if they did, it wouldn't be difficult to accomplish. It's just not much of an accomplishment when I look at it. Well, you're also, relatively speaking, a normal human being that sees only repulsion and it's just sick what he's doing. But for him, it's the control factor. It's what gets him off. He needs this. And that's why I continue to say that these serial killers are wired differently. For any human being... Doing that would be just doesn't make any sense. Why would you do that? And he would, if he was honest and he explained the reason why, he would shake your head and say, "What the hell are you talking about?" But it makes sense to him so much so that he's, as I said, he's writing newspapers, uh, uh, papers. He's writing and contacting television stations where they are more than happy to indulge him. They want to talk to him. They want they want proof it's him. He sends them chapter headings for a book for BTK. He sends the, the, the television station postcards expressing that he hoped they feel better, obviously expressing that he's actually watching them. Um, you know, he actually at one point comes to the TV station as part as being the president of the Lutheran church and the kids are coming, he accompanies them. So he meets the, the anchors of the TV station, the people he's just written, the people who are talking about him. Imagine the control factor for him that he's going to the station, meeting the people who are talking about him and they know have no idea it's him. It's, it's crazy. Well, given what we know about profiling and I don't have anything negative to say about the authorities there in Wichita and, and the feds in Kansas or in that region, but someone that does that, I, I would want to profile and at least tail for a while anyone that does that kind of thing because, you know, we see this over and over. Usually, I shouldn't say usually, that person's often involved or at least doing something else that is noteworthy. Well, yeah, exactly. It's hard to know which ones to pick and which not, ones not to pick because they're all so different. There's so many people in this world. How can you just look into a crowd and say, look, that guy looks like he's probably one of those guys. It's just, that's why serial killers are so prolific and so, um, I guess, good at what they do. It's that law enforcement has to pick between, I don't know how many millions of people are in the United States. 
it's difficult to take that less than 1% of a 1% that I should do these type of things. And that's why they're, they're not, you know, stealthy or geniuses of crime. There's just so many people in the world, it's hard to pick a victim. And who's next? Let me call back. So he gets caught essentially sabotaging himself, I think. Uh, what, what, what is this? What's going on here with the floppy disk? Yeah, well, as I said, he, he didn't have to kill anymore. He was living on, off his attention. His control. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. So the past, he was using it to his advantage. So as I said, he, he began to contact law enforcement, and, and he was giving them all kinds of a box with a doll that represented the first child that he killed, the uh, Josephine Ortega, and all these different things that really proved that it was him that they were talking to. So he finally he sends the police station or police officer law enforcement a question. And it was basically, look, if I send you a floppy disk, could you trace it? Of course the cops are going to say, absolutely not. There's no way we could do this. So they put a message out for him in, um, in, 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 a, in, in a newspaper called, and, and it's the Wichita Eagle, and it says, Rex it will be okay. So that kind of signals to him that they're saying, yes, we can't trace the disc. So go ahead and send us whatever you'd like. I don't believe that he didn't know what he was doing. I believe that this stage in the game, he had, had done everything he could to give them a picture of who this guy was. They knew everything they wanted to know about this guy, except one element was missing. That element is a face behind BGK. That would have been the ultimate attention getter. And of course, people are going to say, well, listen, I mean, that, that would just, you know, that's like shooting yourself in the foot because you're going to put yourself in prison. Yes, but that motivating factor for him, that need for control, is just too much he can't resist. So he plays a little game. He sends a large uh, envelope with a copy of The Rules of Prey, a 1989 novel about a serial killer, to the station. And he sends a floppy disk to the Fox TV station, and they turn over to law enforcement. Now, I, for being in prison as long as I've been, have never had the access to go to a computer and look at it, but I watch enough PBS and I watch enough crime movies and stuff to know that if you send someone a disc, there's gonna be some kind of tracing element there, there's something there that tells it, hey, it was you know, recorded here or whatever. And he writes, this is only a test. Of course, other stuff was deleted from there. And the forensic uh, computer experts that the law enforcement obviously has found the deleted material was on there. And there it said, Church, Lutheran Church of Christ. And at the very bottom, it had his login name, Dennis. 
So, of course, these guys, I guess, went on the Internet, checked it out, and lo and behold, the president of the church is who? Dennis Rager. That's not enough for them, though. They know, they think, that, well, it could be anything. They broke into the place, used the computer. So they do what now is pretty common, which is to, you know, start checking for fam- familiar DNA. And they got a subpoena to look at his daughter's um, passenger test. And remember, the young woman scratched them. <clears throat> they took the fingernail DNA they found under the fingernails and compared it to the DNA of his daughter's DNA. And they found a very close match. What of sibling or parents? And they knew they had their guy. So they immediately went and arrested him. Yeah, I was recently... So this is many years later as technology has progressed, but I was doing something kind of fraudulent with a PDF file, and I don't want to get into the details. It was very harmless, uh, but I didn't know you there was... You sending it to the police station, were you, about DNA, about you being a serial killer, and could you get caught this way, were you? No, it might have something to do with okay. car insurance, but I shouldn't say anything else. Oh, wow. Um, but I didn't know there was like metadata on these files. So if I send someone a doctored file, they can actually, um, look at the information on there and glean all kinds of things such as, was it edited? Where did it come from? Et cetera, et cetera. I didn't know that, but I think that's sort of immaterial. Do you think that him getting caught was essentially his, he'd exhausted all of his attention seeking, behavior and now this was essentially the final you know the big bang that that he could get well the big bang yes was putting a face behind the name btk which he invented now he is btk but there is a bit more to it and is that he continues to get attention there are tv shows movies books hell you and i are talking about him that really gets him going so again he's controlling what's out there about him, whatever, even though we're talking about it in a bad way and that this guy's a terrible guy, he's still controlled because he put it out there. And it's him that we're talking about. So that's his coup de grace that he is forever in the annals of serial killer lore and he's still considered a, well, a pretty intelligent guy that lasted for decades without getting caught. Yeah, he's not an impressive guy. Uh, you know, he's not a good looking guy. He's kind of a, a schlubby guy. You know, he lives in Wichita, nothing against Wichita whatsoever. I come from a small town, but there's nothing glamorous about it. What I'm getting is ego, a tremendous ego from this guy. Is that common among all these type of guys that they have this irrational sense of themselves that they're that they're impressive or important somehow? Well, there is a bit of a big egomania. Yeah, there is a little bit of the ones I've met have a bit of that in them. However, they are also, um, some of them are not, some of them don't care. They come in different breeds, colors, and shades, and you have to know the serial killer in particular. This one was about that control factor. Other ones, Richard Ramirez is another one like that control factor. He did have sex with the victims. He did kill them. But control was the biggest thing for him. Others are different. But yeah, and that's, that's Mr. Raider for you.
Yeah, well, luckily at this point, he is locked up in the El Dorado Correctional Facility, and he's never getting out. And at this point, the only uh, the only control he has is that he can scowl and and glower in his mug shots and try and look creepy, uh, which he's succeeding at. But I don't know. I'm not afraid of him. He's an old man, and. Uh, I hope someone beats him up in prison. Well, I think I, I think he, he, he bit off more than he could shoot. He imagined what prison is like. Now he actually knows what it's like. He has nothing with what he believed it was. He never thought it was going to be this bad. And I think that's a big problem for him. But yeah, he made the mistake. He made his bed. He has lie in it. And uh, that's the episode on uh, this so-called serial killer well hopefully he'll be dead soon and we'll be back next week with another story again follow us on instagram and facebook at death row diaries and bill it's always great talking to you and i guess uh well what what's our catchphrase this is death row diaries be always aware of your surroundings And we'll see you next time. Thank you for listening. Thank you. All right.